following was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. So we thought that in addition to having a historical lecture, that we take the Sunday school time and uh, think a bit about revival. Now, we don't know of any revival that took place uh, at Antioch per se, but we do know the revival that began in New York City in a prayer meeting with five people uh, came down the eastern seaboard. And, but the place that God most blessed it was in the uh, southern army. And so there's actually a, a book about the revival uh, that took place uh, in the Southern Army that actually contributed a great deal uh, to the South being the Bible Belt. So those men who survived and came home and became a part of this work would have been men greatly affected, uh, we would speculate, uh, by uh, that work of God that he did uh, uh, particularly in the Army of the Confederacy, more so than in the, uh, the Northern Army in terms of the revival that took place. Now, the second Great Awakening of which that was a part was, for the most part, a disaster, particularly in the North, where uh, men like Finney uh, reasoned that if, if these things happen when there is a revival, then we can reverse the process. And if we, deal, if we do the results... Uh, then we can create revival. Of course, that doesn't work that way. But that then, how it affected the church, um, and church in the South, was this philosophy then developed. And so, I don't know if any of you uh, have seen or can remember, you drive through our small towns, and you'll see a posting. Uh, We're going to have revival next week. And, you know, October 1st or whatever. And so that mentality was there that we can create revival. So we'll have a special preacher, and he'll come in, and um, we'll have altar calls and do all these things, and then um, we'll have revival. Did your wife find you? <laughs> so, uh, so uh, we want revival. God has not seen fit to give a very pervasive revival uh, anywhere in the 20th century, any, anywhere in the West. Now, I've been a part of a, of a local revival that took place in Mississippi uh, my last year of seminary in the next couple of years. It was located in a geographical area of about two counties. And yet there were amazing amount of conversions and people coming to the Reformed faith. So seeing that happen. We know that God does do those things. And I'm sure it happens locally in places of which, I mean, you wouldn't have been aware of this if I hadn't told you that there was a little bit of like a revival there in those days. Um, And so I'm sure that God continues to bless places uh, in that way. And we can plead that he will bless us. But what we get in Acts chapter 2 is uh, actually what a revival does produce. Now, we have here the end of Peter's speech, uh, his sermon on Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a a once-in-a-time historical event. It's not 
repeated. There'll be some many Pentecosts that took place as Samaritans and Gentiles were incorporated into the church. But in terms of the historical event that took place uh, that Thursday, um, 10 days after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is a one-time event. Now, one-time events can have ongoing consequences. So just as our Declaration of Independence was a one-time event, or uh, that we still enjoy the consequences of that, or if you live particularly in, in England, Arms Day, where even now you read, wear your red poppy and, and uh, you think about the men that had their lives sacrificed you know, in a World War I and the one-time event of the armistice that ended a senseless war in a senseless manner. Um, so, um, Pentecost is a one-time event, but it has ongoing consequences. And that is that we are filled with the Spirit, the Spirit's given to the church, and the church lives in the light and power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Pentecost also produced the first and still the greatest revival in the New Testament church. And so we want to look at what God did so that we'll be encouraged now to pray uh, for this for ourselves. So we're going to look at Acts 2, 37 to 47. And rather than read the whole section, I'll read sections as we go through it. And my theme is, as a result of revival, there will be large-scale conversions and the church growing mightily in grace and truth. As a result of revival, there will be wide-scale conversions and the church growing mightily in grace and truth. But this caution. Revival is simply the intensification of what God does every week. And there are a lot of churches that either are on, in neutral. Of course, you can't be in neutral spiritually. You're always going to go backwards. There's no coasting. Waiting for the next revival. And failing to realize that everything that we're doing here uh, in the Lord's Day, in our prayer meetings, in the instruction of our children is exactly what you do in revival. And that normally, God does not bless those with the abundant blessings that you see in revival. But there's no difference in the means. The only difference is in um, God blessing those means. So we don't change our operation. We are committed to the simple means of grace, praying that God will do these things to some degree in our midst, which he is, and that we know that our country is in such a desperate plight right now that if there's not a greater awakening taking place, um, it's not going to be turned back from where it is apparently. All right, so the first thing then is large-scale conversions, 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, so this is Peter's sermon. He has uh, uh, shown the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel. He's challenged them then with their sin. Uh, and crucifying Christ, and God now exalting Christ. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? So in revival, the first thing that's going to happen is this intensification of conviction of sin. The pierced to the heart. It's the word idea of, of, of a horse uh, pawing the ground. Uh, and so they come to a very... Um, powerful conviction. So Joel will say, you know, rend your garment, your heart, not your garments. 
And they now were rending their hearts. And this conviction of sin leads then to repentance, a crying out, what must we do? And they're consenting to their guilt. And this is what law does. It causes us to come to a point where we recognize our guilt. We feel the weight of it, and thus the question. Uh, I'm still waiting for the day when I'm preaching and someone cries out, What must I do to be saved? Uh, Even though I'm a Presbyterian, I would rejoice in that interruption. Um, But uh, dealing with people as well, uh, one-on-one. So conviction of sin amongst adults, even covenant children who are already regenerated, there's this growing awareness of sin that takes place um, in the lives of people. And then there's Peter's instruction in 38 to 40. Repent, and each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Now, repent here is put for repent and believe. Oftentimes, uh, they're put together. Sometimes it'll be believe, sometimes repent. Repentance includes belief because it's a turning from. You don't turn from something without turning to something. And so turning from sin, from the guilt of sin, the conviction of sin, to the only remedy that God has provided, and that is uh, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. That also is signified then when he says repent and be baptized. It's not that baptism is going to wash away the guilt of sin, but baptism is the sacrament given to us by which God declares that he has washed away our sins and that we are in union with the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice as well the covenant nature of the promise, for the promise offers two things, pardon of sin, gift of the Holy Spirit. This is the great gospel, this is the the great covenant, a promise of God, that he pardons our sins and he is our God, we are his people, that's by the Spirit of Christ indwelling us. Baptism, then, is a reflection of that. Notice as well that the promise is a covenantal promise, not just respect to baptism, but the promise is for you and your children. So here he's speaking to the Old Covenant Church. He's saying, as you repent and believe, this promise is not just for you, it is for your children. And then note, as many as are far off whom God will call to himself, which is a phrase to refer to Gentiles. Promises now for the Gentiles. Pentecost is opening the door for the church to be the church of Christ amongst the nations. Now, we would infer from this, and for those who are called off, many as far off from God calls himself and their children. Because can you imagine that civil war you would have had in a church? Here's the Jewish side of the church, and they can bring their children in. Here's the Gentile side of the church, and they can't bring their children in. No, uh, we know from other places, for example, Ezekiel 47, that it was when Gentiles came in, they came with their children, and they were assigned an inheritance in the church. And so here we see uh, that the promise is covenantal, that it comes to us and to uh, our children, all who are effectually called. It doesn't mean that all that are baptized are going to be converted. It's true of adults, Simon the magician, for example, uh, others. Uh, And so we're not saying that all of the baptized children are converted, but we believe the great majority of those who are baptized, if the elders have done the job of looking for the credible profession of faith, um, that 
The difference in the New Testament church and the Old Testament church is New Testament church, the, the remnant is the unconverted. Whereas in the Old Testament church, the remnant was the converted because of the new covenant, because of the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then further exhortation in verse 40, with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And our gospel preaching needs to include pleas and exhortations, whether it's in the regular preaching of the word. Surely, if there's going to be revival, this is going to take place as well. And that those who come to Christ must separate themselves from the world, not in an ascetic way, but in a way of lifestyle. Not to be running with the people you ran with, not to be... Going to the places you were going. So Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I'm not saying to separate from the world. No, I'm saying you separate. He's talking about a complete separation from the excommunicant. We're in the world, but we're in the world on our terms, not his terms. We want to have relationships with non-Christians, but not going to the places where they're wallowing in sin. And I'll actually deal with that some uh, in the sermon in two weeks. Uh, in the first few verses of Job uh, chapter 31. So we see the response then of the people, and that is those who had received the word, which is a very common phrase in the book of Acts for uh, repenting and believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, were baptized. And that day they were added 3,000 souls. Very interesting word. Uh, this, I think it's used deliberately. This is not... Remember the promises to you and your children. When this word souls is used like this, it refers to men, women, and children indiscriminately. So, for example, uh, in Genesis, it says that when Jacob went down to Egypt, he went down with 70 souls. And that included the children as well as the adults. So, I believe this is an expression that uh, 3,000 people... Families and children were baptized that day in Jerusalem. And that is uh, the response to the gospel. Again, we don't separate baptism from our gospel proclamation. This is why it's very important that the gospel proclamation is made in the context of the church, not uh, in groups who have no access to the sacraments. This baptism is part of the gospel presentation. Let me prove that to you. You know the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And as Philip has presented the gospel to him from Isaiah chapter 53, they're going along in the chariot in the desert, and there's a little bit of water. Now, who suggests baptism? Remember? The eunuch. Not Philip. The eunuch says, there's some water, what hinders my being baptized? Which shows you that as Philip presented the gospel to him, that just as it was said on the day of Pentecost, repent, believe, and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, the revival that we're looking for is going to be a proclamation, a full proclamation of law and gospel that will lead to uh, the sacrament of being baptized, which leads us to the second thing, and that is being incorporated into the church. One of the greatest tests of a revival would not be 
were all these people claiming to be converted. But did the church grow, first off, numerically under that? Now, you know, things have been, um, research has been done. You'll have these giant crusades like Billy Graham crusades. You'll have this great number of uh, uh, converts. And yet, three months later, the church has not grown in numbers of members. Well, they're there for a bit. And there obviously are true converts in those, even if they don't use the best means. For example, Palmer Robertson, the great uh, biblical theologian, was converted to the Billy Graham crusade. And God is gracious, and he converts his people any way he pleases. But it doesn't give us, then, the right to use uh, methods that would be contrary to what we find in Scripture. So the second thing we see here is that revival is going to cause the church to grow. So we read then in verse um, 41, Then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3,000 souls. Now, what does the word added imply? You've got to be added to something, right? Well, we go through um, the book of Acts, and we see that they were being added to the church. So 4 4. Many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of the men. Now we're isolating men from the rest of the family. It came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5, uh, verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number. And so as these people are making their profession of faith, and I should also say this is something we do want to see. And I read the book of Acts. And it's talking about God daily converting people. And that's going to take place if he does visit us uh, with revival. Now, we're, we're going to see conversions by God's grace. Um, but uh, wouldn't, it, wouldn't it be great to see this, that he's daily adding to the church? But there, we see here then the role of the church. And I, that's why I talked about revival is but the intensification of the means of grace. And so there's going to be no growth in grace apart from being in the church. And we see from this language that God has appointed the church, as Calvin would say, to be the mother of the elect. Or as our confession says, ordinarily outside the church, the visible church, is no salvation. In other words, you cannot deliberately separate yourself from the church. And it's not simply in attendance because then we're told, just recently, Mr. Simpson preached in 1 Thessalonians 5, the need to honor and give heed to the elders, or the matter of church discipline. If a person is not a member of the church, they cannot be excommunicated, and yet that's clearly a biblical concept, to be uh, under the governance of the elders, to be protected uh, in that way. And so a revival is always going to produce church growth in the best sense of the word. Church growth through Revival through people now being led into membership in the church. And I want you all to understand the importance of church membership. Um, that there are, it's kind of not popular today in, in the broader Christian circles. And people prefer to be lone rangers and have kind of the master of their own spiritual fate. But what we see here is that the church grew by people being added to the church. And it also shows us, just, just to uh, 
as was said yesterday by Zach, the church, Presbyterian government is not for the being of the church, but the well-being of the church. So churches that are congregational or Episcopal or true churches have had the mark of a church. But what we see in Scripture is the um, uh, Presbyterianism. And here you have a very good example of that because uh, this church in Jerusalem had to meet. It was, it was modeled after the synagogue system. So there were, I don't know how many hundred synagogues there were in Jerusalem at this time. But now you've got, uh, you know, 3,000 from family, and you've got 5,000 men, and you've got men and women being added to the church. Well, there was no building big enough to accommodate them. So they were actually meeting either in the synagogues or private homes that were larger. And there'd be elders, just like the synagogue system, that would be with each group and over the whole. And so in Acts chapter 15, uh, the church at Antioch sends to the elders in Jerusalem as well as the apostles in order to uh, settle this matter about uh, Gentile um, not having to be circumcised to know that their sins have been uh, pardoned. So uh, the church's membership is also then very important. Any questions at this point or comments before I go into what is really the most important part of what we've got here today? Okay. Any pushback? As my students can tell you, I don't mind pushback, so. All right. So uh, the thing that really, large-scale conversions are very important, and the church being growing through this process, but the results that are particularly important in Acts is that um, revival is marked by the pursuit of holiness. Revival is marked by the pursuit of holiness. So in verse 44, um, in verse 43, everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place with the apostles. 44, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. Well, I skipped verse 42. Oh, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling the sense of awe. Many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. So verse 42 is a wonderful description of what we want our Christian life to be and how that is manifested in church. And that is that they all as they were baptized, were continually devoting themselves. This became the the passion of the life of a Christian and of, of a new convert. And they devoted themselves to four things. So they were, and continually, so this marked their lifestyle, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, so here we have the foundation of all Christian living, and that is... Um, Apostolic doctrine. Doctrine is very important. The word teaching here is the word that means doctrine. Uh, this would have come uh, in a number of ways. In the first place, the apostles would have been the infallible interpreters of the Old Testament. And since that's the inspired word of God, they would have had the entirety of the Old Testament. First Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.16, For all scriptures given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. Uh, and 
Paul says in Romans 15 that the scripture is given to us for encouragement and endurance, comfort. And then Christ promises the apostles in John 15 that he'll call to their remembrance everything. And so now by the Holy Spirit, they accurately recorded all the events of Christ's life, but also now were the interpreters of those events of Christ's life and teaching now all that he taught. And so in the baptismal formula, uh, go into the world, make disciples, teaching them all that I have commanded you. And then they would be eventually, we'd have all 66 books of the Bible, what Paul calls the whole counsel of God in Acts chapter 20. So the church of Christ is always to be devoted to doctrine. This is why uh, one of our primary emphasis uh, in our preaching is to be textual and doctrinal. We don't see a tension here. There's some people that are textual and never get to doctrine. There's some that are doctrinal and don't really base it as they ought to in the consecutive exposition of the text. We're trying to keep that balance. That's also why you'll hear us use in our preaching, uh, particularly the Westminster Standards, simply to illustrate for you this doctrinal commitment that we have that comes out of Scripture. And so um, we then are a full-service church. Uh, We're going to have morning and evening worship. And we think that's the primary uh, basis of instruction through worship and the consecutive textual preaching of God's Word. Uh, We're going to do not just children's training, but we're going to do adult training in the church. We're going to do uh, new members' classes. We'll do discipleship of adults. Um, And and all of this, we have this commitment to uh, the doctrine of the apostles. If you ever hear us say anything that you think not in Scripture, we don't want you to go away thinking that. We want you to come to us and say, can you show me from Scripture why you do this or why you say that? And if we can't do that, now maybe we can't do it to your satisfaction, but um, we shall at least give you, Lord willing, uh, valid Uh, reasons from scripture for the things that we would do and teach and this filters down then if you're continually devoting yourself uh, to the apostles doctrine you're going to be in the word privately and as a family that's going to vary in terms of how much time you have you got little children at home and you're the mother you're not going to have the same amount of time in the word that uh, uh, an older woman would have i see it in my own wife you know now she uh, has great times in the morning in the word um, and that's a great blessing of God. Now, when we had children, you know, she couldn't do that. And I know some of you can't do that. Uh, but you grab some uh, time in the Word. But that's also men, then, why family worship is very important. So that at least we can take our children and wives through Scripture. And so we emphasize the necessity of family worship. And if that's not a pattern in your life, then... Pastor Groff or I are happy to work with you and, and show you how to do it. Uh, our first family worship was the family worship that I led. I never experienced it. And my wife thinks she remembers being in one neighbor's home one time in high school or middle school where they one time had family worship. So um, we, we can learn uh, as we go, but it needs to be commitment. And of course, the commitment then to morning and evening worship, and that's a very important thing for us. As a, as a mission church, it's been easy. Um, the people that have joined, unless they're providentially hindered, uh, are back in the evening. Um, and you know, we're going to keep emphasizing that. It's 
what we think is the biblical pattern. But um, uh, as, as the church grows, that's harder to emphasize. But you're going to hear from us when we interview you and we go over the, your vows that this is an expectation. Now, we're not going to discipline somebody that doesn't come to evening worship unless there's uh, really outward Sabbath breaking that's involved with that. Of, of uh, Well, I'm on the golf course. That's why I'm not at worship. That would be different. But if it's a matter that's not a priority in your life, we'll keep working with you to see that it becomes a priority uh, in, uh, in your life. Uh, prayer meeting uh, is a bit more optional, although I trust you'll see as we do this that you'll never have revival without it. <laughs> You're not even going to have conversions without it uh, because it's God's appointed means to blessing his church. And so once again, it's not that every person in the family is going to be there. It's not that some of us will be there every week. You know, right now, you know, Ken's got classes on Wednesday night. Well, he can't be two places at one time. He might try, but he, he can't. Um, so, uh, but it's a pattern that we want to see in the lives uh, of uh, ourselves and of, uh, of our people. Um, so, and that's jumping down to the end, but I'll just plug in there. So next, they can devote themselves to fellowship. This word fellowship is very uh, important. And this, our chapter 26 in the Confession of Faith builds on this concept And that's on page 935. All saints are united to Jesus Christ, their head, by His Spirit and by faith, and have fellowship with Him in His graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. This is probably the most profound statement in the standards on union with Christ. But because of that, we're also united to one another in love. They have communion in each other's gifts and graces and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce to their mutual good, both in the inward and the outward man. Saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God, and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification, as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities. Which communion, as God offers opportunities to be extended into all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So you can see that the word here is, is very rich when it says that they uh, were continuing to devote themselves to Fellowship, this word koinonia, fellowship, is the word that is used here for communion or for um, fellowship. And it's a mutual association because we're in union with Christ, with other believers. First, within the, the body, the, the visible church, the most particular family. And then more broadly, so for example, in our presbytery, we have a, a presbytery diaconal committee as well. And so we are functioning with others who are in, with whom we are in communion here, as well as in mission work. So, now the, the communion takes place always on the basis of apostolic teaching. There's no communion apart from truth. That's why 
The standards begin where they do. So it's because we're committed to the same general truth. It doesn't mean we have to be all committed to every particular doctrine of a visible church, but committed to uh, the triune God, the lordship of Christ, salvation through him alone, godly living, the Bible, the word of God. These types of things must bind us together. Whereas the modern ecumenical movement doesn't care about truth. It's simply, let's be together. Well, we can't be together in true communion if we don't agree. So there's a communion and the apostolic teaching. So we circle back. This is why the apostles' doctrine is so important. But then we'll notice it is also a communion in fellowship. So they were taking their meals together. They enjoyed the company of one another. And one of the marked things for those of you who are visiting about Antioch has been this family element that we have as a church. It's quite remarkable, and actually there's a couple no longer with us in the very earliest days helped nurture this, and that is on Sunday evenings, uh, they would have over to the, he would every Saturday night would put a um, pork roast on the grill and smoke it all night long, and then would simply say, come on after evening worship. And that activity that took place there, I think one of the most significant things in our early development, would, would you agree? In terms of creating this family um, atmosphere that has continued now uh, in the church and is true Christian fellowship. Yes, we do things together. We can have, uh, we can play together, uh, but we also have meaningful conversations and encouraging one another in the things of the Lord and helping one another. And then that leads to the uh, material aspect, and it particularly manifested itself here in that uh, there was a great deal of poverty in the early church, and so they were actually selling uh, their possessions to help the poor. It's not a pattern to be followed. In fact, there's actually a, a, a theological reason that's going on here because they knew that in you know, 35 years it was all going to be destroyed. And they had real poverty in their midst. Why cling to pop- property when I've got brothers and sisters that are destitute? It wasn't, um, it wasn't mandated to do, and you didn't have to give all the proceeds as we see from Ananias and Sapphira. But this is also koinonia, And the word is used probably primarily in the New Testament for uh, participating financially uh, in the life of the church, as we see them doing here. And that's part of this uh, fellowship. And that's in light of that is why the office of deacon then uh, was developed to take up the slack. The Levites would have been the deacons uh, in the Old Testament. I think it's very interesting in Acts 6.1 when we see the church moving into having what eventually becomes a, a, a class of deacons, whether these men were actually deacons or not, but doing that function. I've always found it interesting that uh, after the church began to do that in verse 7 of Acts 6, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly and a great many priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So here the Levites, the priest, who had that function and saw its importance, saw now the church doing it well. Uh, that was one of the things that God used in bringing uh, those men uh, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the church was committed to the sacraments. So uh, they were continually devoted to the breaking of bread. I think the breaking of bread has a twofold sense. They were eating their meals together as part of fellowship, but they 
the phrase is particularly a reference to the Lord's Supper. And it's used that way later on then uh, in Scripture to actually describe the Lord's Supper. And so the church from early on was sacramental. They were doing it regularly. Again, it's hard to tell from Acts whether the breaking of the bread was fellowship meals uh, uh, and the Lord's Supper. Some think it always went together. I'm, I'm not convinced of that, that there was always a meal with the Lord's Supper. But they were, they were sacramental. And, they, and baptism always must be joined to the Lord's Supper. You don't come to the Lord's Supper apart from baptism. And so they've already been baptized, but that's implied to what a church should be devoting itself to, and that is we're to be sacramental. I've already talked about that in our evangelism, but in our life, the sacraments need to play much more of a role in our spiritual development than they do. This is why, Lord willing, I think we're on the same page, that uh, when we have enough people so this doesn't become a burden on anybody, that we will observe the Lord's Supper weekly. And people say, well, then they get commonplace. Well, then, you know, prayer can get commonplace. Preaching can get commonplace. Preaching is more important than the Lord's Supper. We do it weekly, twice a week. Um, so uh, we want to become more intentionally sacramental, um, uh, feeding our souls on Christ in the way that he's appointed. There's no magic to it. It must be blessed by the Holy Spirit to us by faith, but it becomes a very important means of spiritual strength. And then we see the church was continually devoting herself to prayer. Uh, now, the word that's used for prayer here is the most general word. And so in the first place, I think it refers to worship, corporate worship. Because that's the prayers of the church. And, you know, the Anglican Church, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, prayer uh, was a synonym for corporate worship. And so we know that they were worshiping together, and this became a mark of this church and of the Gentile church. Um, and so we have formal prayer. We also have prayer public and private. Our confession says that uh, we are to be praying daily in our homes, privately, and, and with our families. Um, but uh, particularly now, as I've said, if we expect to see any work of the Spirit in our midst... Uh, we must be committed to praying for these things, that God will do them. When I preach on prayer at other churches, I've, I don't have to do that here right now because God's blessed us, but I say, you know, if you're not going to the prayer meeting, you're living off the prayers of the few that come. You, you'll have no blessing apart from this, and yet you, can't take, you don't take part in it, and if God's blessing, it's because of the handful that do take part. Now, we're very blessed so in what, the mid-20s act normally with the children at prayer meeting? Yeah. So uh, we do this because we believe it's a, we're to be devoting ourselves to prayer. And we are praying specifically for a number of things. So, for example, some of you are here today because, you know, and we trust that the Lord will add you to it. We've been praying for mature Christian families. Um, we, uh, we're praying for elders. We're praying for conversions. And we believe that God will hear these prayers because they're things he teaches us in his word that we are to, uh, to pray for. And we pray then for one another. We pray for our physical needs as well as spiritual needs uh, in our families. And so it's a vital fellowship, a life that comes out of revival, a love for God and for one another. And that love for God and one another manifests itself then in his doctrinal commitment and in fellowship and in sacraments and in prayer 
And the attitude then of all through this process was the fear of God as they recognized that um, the Lord God is the one who's great and glorious, praising God, having favor with all the people. And again, the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. We want to see that, don't we? And so we pray for this and we labor for it, but understand this is why we do what we do. Because revival is merely the Spirit's intensification of the blessings on the normal means of grace. And God's sovereign in that. We pray for it, but we pursue then the normal means of grace, knowing that these are the things that God is going to use uh, to bless Antioch and by His grace to give us many more decades of uh, service. Uh, any, got five minutes. Any other any questions? I don't have any other questions yet. Nobody asked a question. Comments? Yes, sir. Lionel. Very good question, Lionel. Um, it's twofold. That, uh, again, the normal means of grace that you know, we are praying for opportunities. Uh, we're looking uh, individually. We keep copies here of ultimate questions. Encourage you guys to take them and use them in your contacts. And we do other strategies to go door to door and other things like that. Um, and in the normal process, we believe that through that, we would see conversions. If the Spirit began to really work in the hearts of people, then in the first place, yes, these efforts that we do are going to have much more fruit than what we've seen. But the other thing that seems to happen in revival is is just something of a public awareness. People are coming under conviction of sin and they're seeking out answers. And so they're breaking down the doors. There's Pastor Groff, was it last week, you know, by violence, taking hold of the kingdom of God. Uh, that's going to happen if the spirit begins to, to move. Now, again, as I talk about this relationship of means of grace, we pray for awakening. We also are praying for revival of ourselves and reformation of the church. The next greatest revival would have been the Reformation. And again, thousands were converted. But that process was first the church being reformed and a true gospel being preached. As that happened, then the Spirit again moved. uh, And both in the reformation of the church doctrinally and structurally, and then again in conversions. And so uh, we're praying for both of these things. We're praying that God will sweep his church of all the liberal unbelief and all the man-centeredness and all the worldliness. And that always includes us then. We recognize that we'll need to be swept more as well. Uh, Reform the church by his word and worship, doctrine, and practice. um, And quicken us. So that's that third part. And what does it look like? Well, this is who we are. And so as we are continually devoting ourselves to these things, or any church, that's the revival of the church. Again, that takes place normal means of grace. 
but there can be a quickening of that. And as that happens, as God purifies the church and people begin um, to respond then to the spiritualness of us as they see us, what does Zacharias say? Um, He says, they'll take you by the sleeve and say, take me. Won't that be great when somebody grabs your arm and says, would you please take me to church or would you please tell me how I can be saved? Well, that's prophesied uh, in Scripture that uh, that's going to happen as well. Okay. Well, thank you for your patience. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless your name that your word teaches us uh, what you're doing, what you'd have us to be, what you're going to accomplish regularly in the life of the church. And we long to see that. Lord, we want to see conversions. Uh, We want to see the church built up numerically but spiritually, being a people continually devoting ourselves to apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. We thank you, Lord, for the history of Antioch and what you have done and what you have already done, Lord, in these three years and ask that you would just quicken that work in our midst, keep the evil one far from us as he is roaming about, seeking whom he may devour. Uh, Keep a hedge about us, Lord, that we'll be united in truth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.